to the Hollywood to Hollywood podcast with your hosts, Emma and Jake D'Souza. Hello. I'd like to do a shout out to Neil, our Patreon supporter. Uh, for anyone who would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon page, which you can find in the show notes. This week, we are bringing you a Northern News segment, discussing some of the biggest news stories happening in Northern Ireland over the past week. To get started, we're going to be discussing the Bally Murphy Massacre, of which there was an inquest result this week. I want to start first by actually naming the victims of Bally Murphy. So I'm going to call out their names now. Father Hugh Mullen, Francis Quinn, Daniel Teggart, Joan Connolly, Noel Phillips, Joseph Murphy, John Laverty, Joseph Corr, Edward Dougherty, John McCare. Coroner Siobhan Keegan said that the 10 victims were entirely innocent of any wrongdoing on the day in question. The killings took place over three days in August 1971 as part of Operation Demetrius, which was interment without trial. The press officer for the British Army, stationed in Belfast at the time, Mike Jackson, claimed those killed were Republican gunmen. He went on to become head of the British Army. The Parachute Regiment, who carried out the killings, then went on to do the same four months later during Bloody Sunday. The vindication for the families this week in finally getting the truth out there as to what happened to their family members comes after 50 years of pursuing the truth. That's half a century. Half a century that brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, and children had to keep fighting for the truth for their families. It is devastating to think how many lives, intergenerational lives, were impacted by having to struggle for so long just to have truth and justice. So it's been a pretty heavy week in Northern Irish politics. And we were anxious ahead of the inquest findings, um, hoping that the Ballymurphy families would get the result that they so deserved. Learning just what happened to their family members on those days was pretty difficult to read. And we know that their loss and grief was only further compounded by the lies peddled out by the British Army afterwards. After the inquest findings, one might have expected that the British Prime Minister may have had a statement to make in response to the findings that 10 innocent civilians were in fact murdered by the British Army in 1971. It took over 24 hours before Boris Johnson made any statement, and you couldn't really call it a statement considering that what he did was put out through a um, number 10 spokesperson that apparently he did apologize to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister during a phone call that day. I'm not too sure why he felt they were the people to apologize to and not the families that had spent 50 years trying to get justice. So over the course of a few days, the British Prime Minister received much criticism for his response. The following day, he wrote a pretty poor letter to the families of the Bally Murphy 
survivors, the, the families that have been fighting for justice. And they rejected that letter. And the reason for that is because it wasn't genuine. And there was a precedent already set back in 2011 when David Cameron announced in response to the Bloody Sunday inquest that the actions were unjustifiable and unjustified, that the people on Bloody Sunday were killed by British army soldiers. And so David Cameron set a precedent when he stood on the floor of the House of Commons. And history tells us that what happened was he was given some weak statement from a staff member to read out, which he then tore up and went onto the floor of the House of Commons and made his own statement, which was powerful. And that demonstrated some accountability. And unfortunately, when it came to it, Boris Johnson just didn't have the same level of care or You know, I mean, I don't even know how to put it into words. Empathy. Empathy is a good way to put it. So a difficult week in terms of how the British government has responded, but also a celebratory week in that we finally have the truth that all of us knew for years as to what happened to these people on um, in Ballymurphy. But of course, the news from the inquest fell on the same day as news in the Queen's speech that the British government is planning to unilaterally move away from the Stormont House Agreement and bring in a sort of amnesty to the troubles in Northern Ireland. They're doing this without consultation from the families. And they're doing this without consultation with the Irish government. And it's been widely condemned because amnesties don't work. They didn't work in Africa. They didn't work in South America. And they're not going to work here. And so one has to wonder who benefits from bringing in a statute of limitations on prosecutions from the Troubles, because it isn't the victims. It isn't the families. It isn't the survivors who benefit from that. It's actually those who carried out the killings that benefit from a statute of limitations on prosecutions. So it was a bit of a bittersweet day in the news, because on one hand, you know, there was a celebration and finally the truth being out there. And at the same time, we have the prospect of justice for the Bally Murphy families in terms of any kind of litigation slowly dwindling away due to the fact that the British government partly intends to close off any route to access to justice. My heart goes out to the families that had to endure uh, half a century of pleading with the British government to just accept responsibility for the fact that they murdered innocent people. It's it's sad that that's that's a win. After all this time, that's the best they could have hoped for because that's how uh, corrupt this government is. In other news this week, we're going to uh, discuss the election of a brand new leader of the DUP. I hear you uh, making a remark there, Jake. Yeah, just laughing. Thank you, DUP, for electing possibly the worst <laughs> candidate to exist. Now, that was exciting. Um, and within the space of two weeks, Arlene Foster uh, was basically uh, dethroned from the top spot within political unionism. And in came marching Edwin Putz, who beat Jeffrey Donaldson by two votes to become the new leader of the party. You could almost hear the champagne corks going off and all the other headquarters of every other political party in Northern Ireland in response to the election of Edwin Putz. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, 
He is a fundamentalist who, amongst another a number of deeply disconcerting personal positions, believes the Earth is 6,000 years old, doesn't believe in evolution, and believes homosexuals to be an abomination. Yeah, and they uh, apparently he believes that they shouldn't even be allowed to raise children or adopt because, of course, uh, a child needs to be raised in a heterosexual male and female run household. A Christian one, too. Oh, a Christian, of course. Well, that goes without saying. The election of Edwin Putz comes at a time of instability for political unionism, who have been struggling since the creation of the Irish sea border to find a way to adapt to the actual ramifications of Brexit. Edwin Putz has ran on a ticket of getting rid of the Northern Ireland Protocol, but considering that the Northern Ireland Protocol forms part of domestic and international law... It's hard to see how he's going to actually be able to action those words. And in terms of the failings of political unionism with an ever-shrinking base, it's hard to imagine that Edwin Putz is the answer in terms of uh, being able to reach out to moderate and progressive unionists. Bringing in a fundamentalist creationist who has many homophobic and anti-Irish views doesn't seem like the answer in terms of being able to reach out to more people in Northern Ireland. And I noted when he was doing his um, social media videos around his uh, running for the leadership position, they talked about how much he loved the people of Northern Ireland. Well, does that include all the people of Northern Ireland or does that only include those who ascribe to his belief system? Now, Edwin Putz has said that he doesn't want the first minister position. So the question mark is still around who's actually going to be the next first minister. And it remains to be seen whether or not Arlene will be able to remain in her position as First Minister until the end of June. Now that the coup has actually taken place, she may not be able to stay in position much longer. And it's interesting also that in accepting that uh, she no longer held the confidence of her party members, she has also stated that she will be actually leaving the party. Not just leaving her position as party leader and First Minister of Northern Ireland, but leaving the party as a whole. So... It's quite a tumultuous time for the DUP. With Arlene Foster out of the way, it's likely that other loyalists of her, such as Emma Little Pengali and others, are likely also to be outed from the DUP mainstay team. what's happening at the moment within political unionism is to do with the electorate. Political unionism as a whole has been losing its base over the last number of years. In the space of two years, the political unionism lost the majority at Westminster and at Stormont. Next year sees the next assembly elections, and they're incredibly important because the MLAs that are elected next year will be those who are going to vote on whether to keep the Northern Ireland Protocol or to scrap it. And they also may be in office at a time of potential constitutional change. So we see what's happening within political unionism as a response and a way to try and prepare for the likelihood that they're going to suffer further losses at the election next year. But is Edwin Putz the answer in terms of being able to get more people to vote for the DUP? I think back to a recent set of focus groups that were done by the campaign group Uniting UK, where a number of respondents said that their view of unionism was that it was an old idea for old men. And I think that uh, with Edwin Putz 
at the helm, that view of unionism is not going to change. I find it surprising that there are really any young people who find anything of value in the DUP or even the UUP at this point, um, other than those who are essentially just brainwashed by their parents. The, the ideals of the party are so regressive and dated, and I feel like you'd have to grow up under a rock in the modern world to feel like those party leaders and the, uh, the position of that party speaks for you. And I, I really feel sorry for anybody who uh, who is in that category. Well, speaking of the UUP, uh, it's also notable that there is a leadership contest also happening within the UUP. Steve Aiken, the leader, resigned his position last week. And for many, that couldn't come a day too soon. Uh, Steve Aiken was unfortunately not the best media performer and has been taking the party closer and closer to the ideals of the DUP at a time when really the UUP should be creating the image of being a moderate progressive political party that can be a legitimate, valid option for unionists who can't describe to the hardline policies of the DUP and they just have not been able to create that identity for themselves. Now, this week, Robbie Butler, who was in the leadership contest for the UUP, has dropped out, meaning that there are no competitors for Doug Beattie, who is now going to be throned at some point the new leader of the UUP. But can he really take the party to where it needs to go? I'm not sure. To do that, they would have to get on board with equal rights, you know, like opposition to the uh, the to Irish language rights. I mean, really? This was a, a statement made by Steve Aiken recently that he said the party was opposed to Irish language rights. I mean, in 2021, in Northern Ireland, we are still dealing with the fact that Irish citizens have their culture and their language and their rights perpetually denied. And if the UUP is going to have any chance of creating an image of itself as being more progressive, well, this is a really good starting point. I also think um, it's worth noting that the UUP also put in a statement to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee in regards to citizenship in Northern Ireland, where they stated that their view was that everyone in Northern Ireland was to be a British citizen and that the Good Friday Agreement applies to a right to identify as Irish, that old chestnut that we have been fighting against for so long. Mm, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we don't agree with that position. Um, So it'll be interesting to see where they take that. In terms of other news, other northern news, it's worth noting in this episode the Owen Harris scandal. It has broke this weekend that the other account that was associated with Owen Harris, the Dolly White account, is in fact his wife. Surprise, surprise. It's someone within his own household. For anyone who doesn't know the background to this story, Owen Harris was a columnist for The Independent. He had a weekly column where he often talked about Sinn Féin and about Northern Irish politics. It turned out that he was behind a Twitter account uh, in which he was behind the mask of Barbara Pym and he was using this account to attack and abuse many fellow journalists, many of whom were women, as well as other academics and campaigners and those he deemed to be soft on Sinn Féin in his own words. Now, it's worth admitting that I also was one of those targets and was targeted by the Dolly White account, which we now know to be his wife. There's a whole 
web of accounts that have been linked to the Owen Harris scandal, with nine Twitter accounts now being closed off, and a conversation to be had over, you know, what protections are in place in terms of on social media when we have so many of these accounts being set up where the sole purpose is is for people to hide behind anonymity in order to attack people, abuse people, discredit them, undermine their work, undermine their credibility. I mean, it's something that has happened to myself personally for years for having put my head above the parapet. I've been constantly attacked by those who don't agree with my positions. And it can be a very difficult space to be in. Journalist Aoife Murr has talked about how she had to get counselling in response to the abuse that she was receiving from the hands of Owen Harris. And now there's going to be litigation in the courts where there'll be defamation and libel claims put forward for comments calling people terrorists. I don't think that that's a constructive political debate to be calling those whose views you don't agree with a terrorist or provo. So this will be an ongoing story that's happening across the island of Ireland. But I think that um, it was clear that many of the targets that Owen Harris went for were in fact people from Northern Ireland, primarily nationalists or those he considered to be nationalist. And that speaks to a whole agenda in and of itself. Yeah, his obsessive would probably be um, the understatement of the year. He He's an incredibly hateful person who is essentially a bully. And uh, the way he convinces himself he's not is by stating that those that he targets are tough enough they can handle it which is classic bully jargon yeah i thought that was quite a funny statement from him too the fact that like oh you can take it there was a car crash interview for anyone who hadn't caught it uh on rte where the presenter had actually said well i was also targeted by your account Uh, and he says well you know oh you're you're well fit for it you know like that's okay so Big um, blowout for Owen Harris, who was, of course, then dropped from his position as a columnist. And he's very unhappy about that because he's been deplatformed. Not unhappy enough that he's going to apologize for anything he's done. He's uh, got that arrogant, stubborn attitude that he's going down with the ship. He's made himself into a martyr. And uh, I guess he fantasizes that tons of people are, you know, idolizing him for his steadfast sternness in the face of ridicule and criticism from presumably everyone who he thinks is just a Sinn Féin provo IRA whatever the fuck he keeps talking about yeah well he's definitely convinced that somehow Sinn Féin is controlling Twitter and that those who he targeted are all somehow Sinn Féin and you know just saying we are not Sinn Féin um and many of those who have been targeted including people like Professor Colin Harvey I mean These are professionals doing their work, you know, or journalists, Salas and Morris. These people were all targeted um, and it's completely unacceptable. Abuse is abuse. And in a place like Northern Ireland, where politics is so divisive and so toxic and labels carry meaning, um, the way that the people have been targeted in that way is really unacceptable and in many ways dangerous. You know, if you're going to be targeting people and saying that they're provosts, well, you could very well be putting a mark on their head. Yeah. So, you know, it was quite dangerous rhetoric that he was using. And unfortunately, now he's dealing with the ramifications of his own actions. Not unfortunately. Very fortunately. I'm glad uh, (laughs) that he is. Thank you uh, for correcting my language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting, though, to see the response from some circles. 
some other colonists that are still defending his actions and uh, politicians even that have been defending his actions and, you know, praising him for being a brilliant mind for decades in his fight against Sinn Féin. I mean, you cannot deem the language and the harassment that he he did as justified, you know? So there's going to be a follow-on conversation, I think, from this that will be around who else was involved. You know, he claims there were five or six other people also managing the account. Now, it remains to be seen whether there's any truth to that, or maybe that's just something that he wanted to say to try and, you know, shirk as much responsibility for some of the more crude comments. But if there are others connected to the account, well, who are they? Are the other journalists? Are the other other politicians maybe involved? And I think that, you know, we could be going to um, a period of time because there's so much litigation around this and trying to unveil all those who are connected in seeing who's behind some of the more toxic, abusive online accounts that have been, you know, pretty rampant in Northern Irish politics for the last few years. And that is a wrap on this Northern News segment, bringing you some of the biggest stories within politics and Northern Ireland over the past seven days. We will, I'm sure, be back doing another Northern News segment soon, considering that there is more to be seen as to what Edwin Putz actually does in his new position. The leadership of the UUP uh, will be confirmed and finalised over the coming weeks, and we'll be waiting to see what happens with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Lord Frost, who is the Brexit negotiator for the British government, has said that he has set himself an informal deadline of July 12th to scrap the protocol. Yes, he set that date himself, apparently. So we'll be back soon, I'm sure, with a Northern News segment. Thank you so much for tuning in. 